Welcome to In the Eyes Of. Today we have with us Ian Cavazos. Ian is a Mexican journalist who has been focused on international subjects like the Hong Kong protests, as well as local issues to Mexico involving discrimination and ethnicity. Ian, welcome to In the Eyes Of. Can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you entered this world of journalism? Hi, Georgina. Yeah, surely. Thank you for having me here. It's it's an honor to be a guest of your podcast. Sure. Well, I, my name is Ian Cavazos. I'm a journalist. I'm an independent journalist here in Monterrey, the northeastern part of Mexico. And I specialize in investigative journalism, data journalism, and fact-checking. And I cover stories about human rights, um, feature stories, and also stories that will be able to tell the world of a problem. Stories about people. I really like telling stories about people. I think that they, they're they really good illustrating issues to the world. And for them, they, they I, I think they help people to, to, to be empathetic of others. And I started in journalism because I wanted to be a fashion editor. My dream job was to work in Vogue United States. I just, I think there came a point in my life in which I couldn't think of anything else than Vogue United States, like working there, being a fashion editor, you know, like being a real world um, editor that you get to see at, you know, social media and documentaries about fashion and being part of the fashion world. I thought it was amazing and I started doing fashion journalism. I collaborated for two or three fashion blogs and well fashion websites really because I, I wrote about essays and I wrote about issues that were related to the fashion industry. Like um the these these issues included uh harsh beauty standards from male models or um Why, why is the fashion industry so backwards in these kinds of topics? Um, so that's why I started, uh, you know, wor working in fashion, really, and writing about it. And, but then it, there came a turning point in which I realized that, you know, um, I could be good at doing another type of journalism, like investigative journalism, which is the journalism I like. And everything changed from sort of like the third semester when I was in college. And then I started specializing in something else. So my journalism completely changed because now I'm able to cover international and national politics. So, you know, it's, it's, it's so strange how this change came out to be. Like, how, why would I start in fashion and then I just now do something completely different where I live? So... That's, that's how I started in the world of journalism. So can you tell us a little bit more about this turning point? Because I do remember when you started out and you were only writing about fashion. And I think it was this magazine called Couturesque or something like that. I remember reading them a long time ago. And then all of a sudden there was this change into your perspective. So can you please tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, sure. Well, I was, I was collaborating for... Three blogs, I, I believe. One of them was Couturesque Magazine. That That's the one I collaborated with the longest. I wrote for them for about two and a half years. And then I was just really busy with work and with the new journalism I did. So I had to exit that magazine. However, um, when I was in third semester, 
for my investigative journalism class, we had to present an investigative report, you know, an investigative report about how, you know, any any topic really. So what I chose to write for this class was a topic that was really, you know, it's always a hot topic here in Monterey, but it's not really news, unfortunately, because it came, it became really normalized, unfortunately. And that issue is discrimination at nightclubs. You know, you you might think, well, you know, it's it's a nightclub. I mean, why would you really stand up for your rights in a nightclub? You know, why not in another type of outlet? However, I believe that what happens here in Monterey, in nightclubs, specifically a municipality called San Pedro, what they do is incredibly discriminatory and racist. And in the end, it's actually illegal. So in, in the end, what I wrote about was how there's this system of bouncers that really have to obey orders um, to, to the owners of these nightclubs of not letting people in that might look different, that might not look desirable according to this, their standards. What they want to see is white people, essentially. The more European traits you have on your face... You know, you have a white skin tone, you have green eyes or blue eyes, or if you're blonde, if you're tall, if you have, you know, this is not really about uh, race, but, you know, it's about social classes too. What type of, what, what type of clothing is, is, is the person wearing? And if the person would be wearing low quality clothing, if they would be wearing something else like tennis shoes or informal things... They would reject people from the door. And, you know, that that's something that does happen in other parts of the world. But what happens here in Monterey, I believe it's a very unique case. The way that we do it in Mexico, which is very unfortunate, which is that they cherry pick people from the crowds. Well, that, that's what the bouncers do. And what they start doing is re- they reject people that might be of a darker skin tone, if they're not very tall, if they would be overweight, or if they're wearing low-quality clothing, if they would be just looking different from their their standards of exclusivity, which I think it's something very unfortunate. It, it's actually normalized, and it's something that you see every single weekend now in the city. Right now, you know, because of the coronavirus it's not really possible for you to go there. But if you go to San Pedro, to the nightclubs prior to the pandemic, or if you go after the pandemic, then you you would actually see this happening. This is the norm over there. Yeah, and it's like you said, it's been normalized so much to the point that even normal people who are planning to go to the nightclubs often know they might not be allowed to go in, or maybe they are allowed to go in, but not their friend who has these other traits. Exactly. What? Well, yeah, I'm so glad you bring that that up. Even if you go with a group of friends and you're the one looking different or undesirable according to their standards, because it's it's extremely subjective. They do not really mind to separate you from your friends and to make a clear distinction between who you're, who are you going with and if if there's five people that do you know that that, that do accomplish these characteristics that they're, they're looking for, but if one single person doesn't look that way then they would reject that person and i i don't know it's 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 very normalized here and it seems to me that to many people unfortunately again i keep saying that word but i just think it's very unfortunate if a venue does 
that I think that people want to go more for some reason. We aren't really an empathetic society over here. We need to be more critical of things that happened. You know, if, if this happens in other parts of the world, I, I've seen this and I've seen reports, but you get a media story. You get an article written about it. However, here in Monterey and in other parts of Mexico, if that happens, I mean, that's not usually something that's published as just a single story, as just a single case of discrimination in the nightclub. Why? Because it has become the norm over here. Even more than that, I think it's like you said, it's more desirable. So people often want to go to these places because of the exclusivity that it provides. Yeah. Exactly. It's this phenomenon in which the the harder it is for you to get in, the more people would want to get in and would want to belong. And so I, I was looking at this issue. I think I reported this story when I was about 18 years old. And I was just starting to look into this. And I also witnessed other illegal things inside the club. And this discrimination is actually illegal. So there's this myth over here that venues have the right to refuse, you know, anyone from coming in. However, the Mexican federal law tells us that this is actually illegal. A venue cannot, simply cannot refuse service to someone else on the basis of sexual orientation, on the basis of skin tone, on the basis of religion or ethnicity or race. That's that's completely and actually the law calls it discrimination and it's it's illegal according to federal law. So this is actually a myth. The fact that people think that venues have their right to do this. Well, it, it's actually illegal, but they also did other illegal things inside the club. Like they would be establishing, a, you know, minimum consumption rate to a table, which are usually the ones near the dance floor would be like around 5,000 pesos or something. They would sell cigarettes inside and they kept doing other things like, for instance, like I never really could find the, the, the venue's licenses for selling alcohol. And I searched for it in the municipality's webpage because those are public according to our uh, open data law, you know, transparency laws over here. And also I looked, I looked for that in the state government's page and it, I couldn't come across it. I, I never found it. Therefore, I think that what these clubs do is just a set, a really wide set, I would say, of illegal things and illegal acts. And I think that it's not written about it enough and it's not covered enough here. So I wrote a story about it, you know, exposing discrimination and why is it illegal and exposing all of the illegal things that they do inside the nightclubs. And that's that's when I actually realized, well, I really like doing this. I, I like this type of journalism. And it allows me to stand up for others. And it allows me to uh, present the facts to someone else and for people to be more conscious about what's going on. And why is that wrong? Why, why, why is it wrong? Something that we've always se seen as normal, unfortunately, you know, in the city. So it actually, this investigation won in the class and then it got published at, at a local newspaper at Milenio. It made like a half a page or so. It was really exciting time for me because I was in third semester. I was like 18, I believe. So it was really exciting to get that story published out there. And that's when I realized, you know, this uh, this is a turning point really in which my career shifted 
entirely. So, and right now, like you said, that turning point, you've come to do incredible reports and publish incredible news about international issues such as the Hong Kong protests going on. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what's going on in Hong Kong and how you decided to initially report about this topic. Yes, of course. In June 2019, according to the organizers of the protests and the movement, around 2 million people went out to the streets in Hong Kong and protested against a bill that would have allowed extraditions to mainland China. So Hong Kongers could be extradited to mainland China. Mainland China is the rest of the territory, the one that doesn't include Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan. So mainland China is essentially where, where Beijing is located, where Wuhan is, you know, the big China. And this wasn't really a law back then, but then last year, the local government established, you know, they, they had a bill that they were about to discuss that talked about extraditions over there. And Hong Kongers, they disagreed uh, widely and profoundly because they thought that this, according to critics, would allow a crackdown coming from Beijing towards people that openly dissent against Chinese authorities. Therefore, that's why a lot of people disagreed on the extradition bill and a lot of people went out to protest. However, then after several months, the, you know, the movement carried on. There were sometimes violent protests and sometimes, you know, there were clashes between the people and the police. And I think they were widely covered by international media and also local, really good local media over there. And this movement really evolved towards a pro-democracy movement. They added five demands to the movement. One of them was to have universal suffrage in Hong Kong so that, you know, voting could be universal there because their system in, you know, right now, it doesn't really allow them to do that, not to vote for the entire council, for instance. They can only choose a, a small part of it. And so they, they added demands to their protests. The bill, the extradition bill was withdrawn in October. And then later on, the protest still continued because they were asking for these five things. And then after 2019, the virus came. They had really strict laws about going outside and group gatherings. So they had to stay indoors. And protests kind of went away because of this. And then what happened is a month later, what Beijing did was that they promulgated a national security law over the territory. And just for you to have more context is that Hong Kong was a colony from the United Kingdom and it was returned to China in 1997 under the condition that they would be having 50 years of a high degree of autonomy from the government of China. That allows them to have really an independent judicial power that's actually guaranteed in their mini, you know, their mini constitution, which is called the basic law and which is really the equivalent to a constitution, you know, like We're in Mexico, so it's it's like that. And those 50 years are guaranteed there. However, that that those 50 years end in 2047 because that's that's when the year 50 uh, comes to an end. So this allows you know this allows the former British colony to have a, a different system. It actually operates under a system. Its principle it's called one country two systems. So that's actually mentioned widely. So they're a part of China after the United Kingdom returned them to China, but they have a different system. They have autonomy. 
and they have other daily freedoms like open internet and you know anyone could be a journalist in Hong Kong contrary to what uh, people have reported to me some sources that you know in China you need to have like a special a permit to report on stories over there that's not really the case in Hong Kong exactly so essentially their freedom of speech is very well yep. practiced as opposed to yep. people in occidental China Yeah, exactly. You know, you could really think and you could really view Hong Kong as this sort of small beacon of freedom of expression, you know, next to a really large country that, you know, doesn't really allow this kind of information just going around in, you know, local media because media there is state media in in the mainland. So you could really see a, a really big contrast of cultures, of daily freedoms and of speech. You know, you could you could really uh, see the difference. That's what tourists have been pointing out. And I started writing about this. I knew someone from the territory who I contacted when these protests started going on back in 2019. And actually, the person agreed to being interviewed. However, we couldn't really find a time. So then the person um, gave me the contact of uh, contact details of someone else, and then that other person from Hong Kong started, you know, giving me more contacts of other people who I could talk to, you know, who, who I could interview that participated in the 2019 protests. That article didn't really get published here in Mexico during that month in June. I was too late. And I was really disappointed. I thought that you know I could never write about that anymore because of the timeline and you know the timing. It's distant. It's a little hard to understand. You know this this issue. So then I started. You know I was I was actually a little bit pessimistic about pitching it to other media companies. But then the movement continued, and I pitched a story to Verificado MX, which is a, a nonprofit journalistic organization here in Monterey that does fact checking you know they do news about fact checking and things like like for instance we actually published yesterday on Friday a story about how the president has had misleading and false speech um you know so we we do fact checking so i i covered the the Hong Kong topic and it was published in November initially i You know, thank God, it really managed to have a very broad network of sources. I actually cannot really believe it to this time. The fact that I'm covering Hong Kong from Mexico, and it was a country that was completely well. It, it was a place because you know Hong Kong's part of China, so it was. A, it's a territory that's completely you know that I had never really interested in it previously. But then this happened, and I had the opportunity to interview Hong Kongers, and I just started to interview a lot of them. So then after this, after the, the extradition protests, what happened was that in the on the 30th of June of 2020, so just uh, you know days ago, really weeks ago, a new national security law was promulgated from Beijing. The Hong Kong local government didn't really have a say in this law. And China essentially, according to sources like Keith Richburg from the University of Hong Kong, he says that China was waiting for this opportunity, you know, that they didn't have this national security apparatus in other parts of the country. You know, they, they didn't have this apparatus in Hong Kong, like in other parts of China. Therefore, they were waiting really for this and that the protests from 2019 spooked China badly therefore china wanted to they they really wanted to make you know for these protests to come to a halt how can this how, how you know how can these protests come to an end because people were really outraged in hong kong 
So they started with this new legislation, which is the national security law. And this law targets four main crimes. One of them is secession. The other one, subversion. Another one, the third one is uh, terrorist activities. And the fourth one is collusion with foreign forces. And you know what? Sources have really pointed out, like Keith from the, from the University of Hong Kong, which, by the way, he's an excellent journalist. He used to work for you know, the Washington Post. He worked for them for 30 years. So she, he, he's really good. He's, he's been a foreign correspondent uh, for many years. And now he teaches journalism there. He mentioned that you really have to look at how this law of national security is applied in China. How is it used? You know, how how is it developed? Who Who does it target? And what he mentioned was... They don't really use it to go against really threats of national security. They use it to go against people that openly dissent from the mainland authorities. So, so they basically use these laws as, as, as a major crackdown to all the, the voices that really challenge the government, that, that may jeopardize them. So that's, that's essentially what they did in Hong Kong. Which is essentially what they were trying to do and the people initially started protesting against with back in 2019. Yeah, exactly. Because what, what this law mentions and what, what it really, what the national security really accomplishes, and this is actually mentioned, I, th this was mentioned by Sharon Fast. She, she teaches media law at the University of Hong Kong. Um, I interviewed her for one of my pieces, which was published a couple of weeks ago. This law really accomplishes and, and it turns everything into a bifurcated system in which you do have Hong Kong judges to be able to look at the cases that breach national security. But then you have another part, you know, China actually has the power to have a secret police there. They have one already and they have brought powers to investigate Hong Kongers and to investigate people that break this law. And they can also be taken outside of China under a very, what Sharon said, a plastic set of circumstances. This law isn't really detailed heavily. It's it's really contrary to, to you know, American laws or Mexican laws that, you know, they really spell out entirely what it's what's a crime and what's not a crime. And you you have, you know, the number of years that of penalty, you, you do get to know what's a crime and what's not a crime. But under this new law, they criticize that they really established a really plastic set of circumstances. They're not really clear. They said that the law is vague. And Bruce Louis from the Hong Kong Baptist University, he was a correspondent in mainland China for 12 years. Uh, when I interviewed him, he said that the, the, the final interpretation is up to the mainland authorities. So this is highly worrying for them and for the people who have been protesting. And right now, there's a very different context. For example, if someone goes out to the streets of Hong Kong and holds out a flag or chants slogans like liberate Hong Kong revolution of our times or Hong Kong independence, they can be arrested under this new national security law for promoting secession, which is the first crime that it targets. And what it says under that part of secession, I read it many times. If the crime, if the offense is serious, they could go up to life in prison. We don't really know if that's going to happen for the slogans or 
what's you know what's a, what's a serious offense they don't really spell it out for you and hong kongers are now having a hard time you know deciphering this and they don't really know what's going to happen and also here's also the some of the most concerning bits of this law for a lot of people anyone could break this law you don't have to be a hong kong resident and you don't have to be in hong kong for example if, if you went out right now to the streets in mexico and started holding out those flags and if you you start to do you know, uh, if, if you start to promote independence of Hong Kong, for instance, if they interpret it that way, and if you ever tried to go there, you would be denied entry, most likely. Uh, you know, you would be questioned because anyone can violate this law. It's actually in the law itself. You don't have to be a resident. You don't have to be there physically. If they find out that, you know, you're engaging in this type of behavior, which, you know, would be very unlikely. I mean, it's a very far away place from here. But, you know, they, they, they also did it because last year, what happened was that there were Hong Kongers in the United States and in university campuses in other countries who were protesting as well using these slogans like the, the, the first one that's banned the Liberate Hong Kong slogan it's concerning for them this really put a big question mark you know on the future of freedom of expression in Hong Kong can newspapers now be targeted and that's essentially what we saw on the 10th of August Jimmy Lai who is a media mogul he is uh, the, you know, the, the founder and, and director of this paper called Apple Daily which is a very critical newspaper of, of Beijing. Uh, he was arrested at his house for alleged collusion with foreign forces. And then the newsroom and the, 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 the paper's building was raided by around 200 police officers. And the, the, the Foreign Correspondents Club in Hong Kong, they said in a press statement that this is the, you know, this is an assault, a, a direct assault to the press freedom over there. So what we see now is a very different context from what was happening in 2019. There are crimes that didn't really count as crimes before. So it's it's a very different Hong Kong now. That's what the, the sources have been saying. And I have to ask, so why is it that you got interested or that you, that you wanted to report these stories that even though they're so foreign to Mexico, this is not something that the Mexican press is essentially focusing on at this step. So why did you decide right. to publish these things in Spanish in Mexico. Yeah, sure. So what, what I realized first is that the Mexican press covers these stories always, you know, with the help of uh, agencies like Reuters, like Associated Press, like AFP. It's essentially content made for the whole world. They, they, they're, so news agencies are really good at breaking news. Uh, they're, they're very important, you know, organizations for the rest of journalists. Um, however, what I was realizing is that, you know, this content wasn't really explained properly to the Mexican public, uh, you know, it, because what they used was, was content from agencies. They still use it to this day. So I thought, why, why, why is it important, you know, for, for Mexican people to, to get to know what's happening in Hong Kong? The, the main reason I think it's, is that we're all part of an international community and we have to be and learn to be empathetic, we have to learn to be objective, and we have to learn to engage in conversations of re really different kinds of topics, even though we're thousands and thousands of, of kilometers away from the territory, which is Hong Kong. I think that this will really help us to develop a sense of, you know, being critical and being objective as of what's happening in other parts of the world. And Right now, this happened in 2020. A national security law was directly promulgated 
without the participation of, of Hong Kong. So what if these set of laws are promulgated, you know, in other countries or other parts of the world? Or what if Mexico ever uses these kinds of laws to directly target journalists? What we see in Mexico, we do see a lot of threats to personal freedom, but they have other methods, really, like threats using criminal bans or cartels, for instance. We don't really see it this way, of a prosecution coming directly if, if someone criticized a political party, for instance. I don't believe that we really see it this way. So what if that happens in Mexico in the future? I think it's very important for Mexicans to, to be completely contextualized and to, to really know what these laws aim for, which, you know, and, and, and what do they seek? You know, and according to the sources and according to the journalism community in Hong Kong, these set of laws are there to directly target people who dissent from authorities from, from the country. So I think it's very important for, for Mexicans to know this. If I have a lot of sources in Hong Kong right now, you know, Hong Kong is, is a topic I cover now. Published it twice in the last time I published it at a national Mexican magazine. So I, I think it's my responsibility to inform the Mexican public as a journalist what's going on over there. And, you know, they, they really need to be um, focused on other parts of the world, you know, not, not just here. And I couldn't agree more. I think it's very through what you're saying that we're all part of an international community and not only to be aware and informed of what is happening in other places of the world that could be very well extremely different from our customs or languages or anything really, but also to keep it from happening anywhere else, like to learn from these things that are happening essentially in Hong Kong and see, okay, what if this could happen here? What could we do about it? Yeah, exactly. You know, like, like the saying goes, you know, we get, we, we have to know history and we have to know a lot of things of uh, what, what if it's repeated, you know, in, in another, at, at another time. So I think it's, it's important for people to know and to be completely conscious about everything. And as you were saying that in Mexico, we have like a different kind of system when it comes to journalism. So Mexico, if I'm not mistaken, is considered one of the top five countries where it is extremely dangerous to be a journalist because of this kind of situations. So how do you view freedom of speech and journalism in Mexico right now? Yeah, but it's, it's actually a very concerning topic for Mexican journalists. There are organizations like Article 19 that have that repeatedly report aggressions and intimidation to press. And in Mexico, it comes in a lot of forms. For example, you know, public officials intimidating the press or what we saw when the insecurity levels were just extremely high here in Mexico, journalists were killed. And by simply doing their job, which was covering things and letting the world know what's happening at a special place and at, at a specific place, really. So in Mexico, we have different things of how this freedom of expression is really threatened It's not the same as in Hong Kong right now or as in, you know, mainland China, as, as, as its critics would say. We have it differently. So, for example, on the 2020 World Press Freedom Index, Mexico scored, it was ranked 143 out of 180 countries. China has placed 177 and the last place, which is 180, that's North Korea. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we are with, we have a red color on this map. You know, uh, which is very you know, concerning. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's ext extremely concerning. And I think it's very dangerous for journalists, you know, in, in the country. It certainly depends on the state 
and the place you are. For example, here in, in Nuevo León, what some journalists have told me is there is criticism. However, it, it, it it's just it, it never goes that far as it would be in other states like Veracruz or Guerrero, which is, uh, are, you know, very dangerous states to be a journalist. So what we see, though, here in my state, for instance, as I guess I've been a journalist here for several years now, when some investigative reports were published by some newspapers or media organizations here in Monterey, what the governor would say, which, you know, these, these reports and the, these stories were criticizing the local administration. What the governor came out to say was that they were lies and that they were fake news and that this newspaper just publishes a ball of flies, you know, just a, like a, <laughs> like a really, this conjuncture, I, I don't know how to say it, like this, they published lies, essentially. That That's what the governor was saying and that he was going to prosecute the, a, a paper and that they shouldn't really publish fake stuff, which is a speech, I think it's very concerning in other parts of the country and in other parts of the world. Why? Because, you know, it's not really that it's fake news. It's that they don't like it. Administrations do, do not like and find it very uncomfortable to be confronted and to be um, exposed by the press. It's, it's, um, it's, you know, investigative journalism. It's actually very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable towards the individuals that the piece is, is, is published, you know, the individuals that are mentioned in the piece. I think it's, it's worrying the fact that there's this world narrative, really, that journalists are there to lie and not really to inform. And our main duty is to inform. Unfortunately, there are, you know, journalism organizations here in Mexico. They have, uh, they do not really have ethics, you know. They publish photos of dead bodies, as we saw, you know, they, they published um, a dead body of a woman recently, which was very unfortunate. They, they should never really do that. Really yeah, do like that. really graphic stuff that, are, exactly. that shouldn't be allowed. Exactly. They do sensationalism, you know, in, in the end. Um, so I think, you know, there's media companies here in Mexico, of course, that they don't, do not really have ethical standards. But for other, you know, ethical journalists that are really doing, you know, we're just doing our jobs. We're investigating and we're analyzing every single thing that could be analyzed in order to tell people the truth. And this is really, I believe, a democratic process. You know, press is there to hold power to account. Um, we're there to be really against abuses of power. We, we're there to expose inju injustices. So I think it's very unfortunate that, you know, nationwide and also, you know, in other parts of the world, us journalists, we're seen as, you know, people who lie. Al although it's not disinformation or fake news, it's really that we're just doing our job and, and, and the people that are reading it don't like it. They don't like to hear the truth, that the governments don't like to hear those truths. They're scared about it, I think. So I think that's one of the main things that we experience as journalists and also threats to personal safety. Threats to personal safety we also experience. And also, I think being a journalist in Mexico is hard because of the whole jobs, standards out there. It's not a well-paid profession and position here in Mexico, unfortunately, and it should be better paid. We're doing a very hard job to keep people informed in the midst of a pandemic. You know, some of my partners, I, I haven't really been out like them. They, they're risking their lives 
uh, just to get the story told to the public. So I think it's really about those three challenges in Mexico, which are this narrative about journalists lie, these threats to personal freedom and, you know, to personal safety. In the end, these really bad standards at work as a profession. Which I also think is very preoccupying. And it definitely shouldn't be this way, because as you said, at the end of the day, journalism, media, press, it's what balances what is going on with the government. It's your job to actually tell us, the population, what is going on and keep us informed in a way that we can understand. Because I think I'm not the only one, and I think many people can agree that many of us cannot understand what is actually going on in a governmental level. And it's with the help of journalists that we are actually aware of what is actually going on in our own country. Exactly. Yeah, we're the ones there to tell you what's happening inside Congress while someone else is at work. You know, these these meetings, you know, these these sessions are open to the public. But what if you have to work? What if you have to do something else? You know, it's really our job to translate that really complex language to the public. You know, what's going on inside of Congress and That's that's when I think that Mexicans could also learn of Hong Kongers. Like it happened a few months ago here in Mexico in, in the state of Nuevo León. They were trying to pass this bill about the parental pin, which is essentially a bill that would, you know, would, would have allowed parents to decide what their children could learn in schools, you know, specifically targeted content. And under some circumstances and some, some things like freedom of uh, re religious freedom or if it goes against their religious or ethical or moral con convictions. And I think that the, some organizations did a good job informing people and the media as well about what was happening in the Congress. And I think that's one of her, the first times I've, I've seen and have witnessed, you know, directly Uh, how the public opinion can change things like it happened in Hong Kong. You know, really, the the extradition bill was withdrawn in October. Uh, people were really against it. Right now, they have a different context and circumstance because of, of the law that, that ju was just promulgated. But we can learn, you know, from that in Mexico. Why are they so politically like savvy? Um, why do they know so much uh, about politics? Why Why is it? Why is it for them? That it's, that it's very important to be completely immersed in the political discussions. You know, that that's something I think that's very important to do in Mexico. We need to be more empathetic about public affairs and about uh, foreign affairs, too, in order to be more critical of our own country, really, and to be able to change things, to be part of the conversation. So, Ian, to close up the conversation, I want to ask you something that is a recurring question in the podcast. Yeah which is what are some of the upcoming challenges that you will be facing and how do you plan to overcome this? Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, one of the main challenges that I'm, that I'm facing currently, really, is this part of companies and, and journalistic companies do not pay enough to journalists. It, they, they have a, a really little resources and the ones that pay the most, it's not a very good paid compared to other professions here in Mexico. So right now I'm thinking, how can I expand my network of sources? How can I expand my knowledge on different topics? Since I'm an independent journalist, I'm, 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 I'm constantly trying to, you know, think of new stories and new things I can tell people. 
and making more sources and to really pitch to other media companies. So right now, I think I'm focused on really expanding this network of sources and to keep creating, but also to get some rest. Because the second thing that I struggle with the most, I would say, is it's an obsession of being perfect. So there's this obsession of, of my pieces being absolutely perfect because, you know, if you make one mistake, I think it's actually replicated in, in a very large scale because journalism is, you know, we do mass communication. So it can get very daunting and scary at the end to write those kinds of things, especially if they're going, you know, to be published at a national media company. You know, it reaches a lot of people. So, you know, I always really try my best and I really just check every time the the information I'm putting out there because I really think it's so important to have good information, fact-checked information and to really be able to tell the story right, to getting the story right. However, I think what can happen is that there can be an obsession of being perfect. You know, so apart from having just the facts right, it's also about, oh, how how does this sound? You know? So I think this this perfectionism is good at a certain level but right now it's just being not not as helpful so what i'm currently doing now what i will be doing with this challenge is to just really let it go you know that we we cannot just be dwelling on uh, on an article we just have to let it go and publish it you know many times but being very responsible at the same time so that that's what i'm really working on right now which I honestly believe you're very responsible to what you publish. I have had the honor to have followed you for so many years now, and I'm just, you're a person that I admire so much, not only because his passion into what you do, but also because of your ethics and your moral, and you stand firm on your ground of what okay. you want. So Ian, I want to thank you so much for taking up the time of doing this podcast, of actually engaging, and for everything that you do, and actually publishing the truth out there, which is very well needed. Oh, th thank you very much, uh, Georgina, for the, uh, the the invitation here to, to your uh, podcast. I'm very happy to be here to talk to you. And I admire you a lot as well. You know, you have a lot of projects going on. And in the end, you, you, you want a, a, a better world, which, you know, I think it's very important to have youth that are really out there to make a change. Um, So thank you for inviting me and it, it was a very good conversation. Thank you very much for everything. Thank you so much, Ian. <laughs>